In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, it begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And today, what I considered with you guys was this concept of God as the creator, um, uh, God as uh, God as Lord, and God as the sovereign, the one who the one who puts into motion um, everything that is. But I want you to notice a different angle on this right now, and that is that this sentence, which is an overview of God's creative work, Him creating everything that is out of nothing, this sentence stands alone from the rest of the creation account. It is the summary sentence that God is the cause of the universe that we live in. Uh, He is the cause of the lives that we live and the things that we enjoy He is the creator of all that is and can never be confused with his creation. Uh, That is extremely important for us as Christians. Monotheistic faith is that God cannot be confused with the creation he created. Uh, We are not all a part of God, uh, but we live and breathe and have our being, as it says in Acts um, by the God who, who created everything and sustains everything by the power of His Word. But there's something else here, and that is, is that God created the heavens and the earth. Beginning, notice this, this is so interesting. You have time, you have space, and you have matter. <laughs> uh, all wrapped up in this, in this singular sentence. Now, what I want to state very, very clearly is that many people have tried to turn Genesis into a scientific document. And they've actually abandoned their faith due to the fact that, that this doesn't seem to align with what science tells us. First of all, anything stated about that which is before history, it's prehistory, which means there is no written history other than what we have before us. Prehistory is, is scientist speculation on origins, uh, but it is still just that. It is an attempt to make sense of that which we don't have a tremendous amount of information about. Now, science is not exact and it is ever shifting, the age of the earth, all of these things. But I just want to state, I don't care about any of that actually, because I care about it. I like it. I'm interested in it. But I don't care about it in terms of my reading of Genesis because the purpose of Genesis is not to give us a scientific document around creation as we know it. The purpose of Genesis, if we were to stick with the tradition of the church over the last 2,000 years and actually stick with the tradition of the Hebrew understanding of Scripture, is that Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch, which is the, the books that were given to Israel by Moses. Now, here is the purpose of this book, and here is the purpose of this account, is that Moses is giving the children of Israel in the wilderness their own cosmology. They have been brought out of slavery. They have been entrenched in a pagan cosmology. Egypt worshipped so many gods. There's the sun god, the moon god, there's the river god. There are all these gods. There is an actual work being done um, in the creation story to unhinge Israel's temptation to rely on 
the gods of the land in which they were enslaved. There is a beautiful reality that is being achieved here, and that is Moses is giving the children of Israel the real history of creation as given to him by God. And not only that, but he is using the mythopic language of the Near Far East cosmologies that were around them, except the supreme difference is that it is all wrapped up in the Creator God, and it is utilizing the poetic language and at the same time telling a true story. So we need to understand the type of literature we're dealing with here. There is a poetic element. Uh, this is not a scientific document. As Tim Mackey beautifully stated once when he walked our staff through it, when you see God created the heavens and the earth, we immediately picture a round earth, a photo of a round earth taken in 1968. But that's not the way ancient Israel viewed the world. And God was revealing Himself in His redemptive purposes uh, to, to His people. Uh, he wasn't correcting their ideas around whether the earth was flat or round. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose is, is that God is the creator of everything that is. Humanity continues to discover um, things about what what is the outcome of God who is the source of everything. But humanity will never be able to, to answer the question of what's behind, what's behind what we do know if they reject God. They will always come up against a, a, a wall, and that's just a fact. And so I think it's important for us to not attempt to try to, try to reconcile our understanding of, of origin theories, which is all that they are, um, and there are strong, and every theory around creation has its holes and its problems and it has its, its possibilities. And so what we have is something that is profound and that is God's creation of the universe and humanity at the center of that universe. Um, and this is something that we can't ignore. Everything God reveals about himself in scripture is directly corresponds to his relationship with human beings. That's all I'm gonna say. Now we're going to move in. Okay. In the beginning, God created everything up there, everything down here, the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface and the deep of the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now here is a mysterious verse uh, that, uh, that there is a tremendous amount of debate around, but that word formless and empty um, has traditionally, can be traditionally actually translated waste and void. Um, and it does have negative connotations. Darkness itself, hoshek, uh, is, in the Bible comes to symbolize that which opposes God, um, such as the judgment in Exodus 10.21, death in Psalm 88, oppression in Isaiah 9.1, the wicked in 1 Samuel 2.9, and on and on and on it goes, all the way through the New Testament. God is light and in Him is what? No what? Darkness at all. But here we have the earth formless and empty, waste and void. Um, now, the possibility that in the, some believe is that there was something that happened that we are not given insight into, and there's all kinds of speculation. The spiritual war, war in heaven, we don't, the scripture doesn't give us a date, doesn't 
pinpoint the day um, that angels were created. There are guys like John MacArthur who says angels were created um, on day, I think, day four uh, because of the stars in the heavens. Uh, but I'm, I'm like, the, the literal 27-day creationists that believe that, the, that everything that we know is created in seven 24-hour days, I, what I find troublesome about that is the idea that God creates angelic hosts on day four and they rebel by the end of, what, day seven? Like, that doesn't make sense. I, I think we're, we're reading more into the Scripture. We need to be careful to not fall into the trappings of liberalism or wooden, or, um, uh, excuse me, liberalism or wooden literalism. Liberalism is everything in Scripture is just symbol. Wooden literalism is everything that's stated is it's exactly as it's stated. Every word is inspired. Uh, and there's just no margin for error, I think you're going to find yourself deeply frustrated if you don't understand the types of Scripture that we're looking at. And, and it does damage to the poetics, and it reads more into the text than we need to. I, it doesn't matter if it's a literal seven days or, or a, a symbolic seven days, but it's telling a true story. That's the most important thing. What, we, what I hold to is that the Scripture is true witness. It is telling a true thing, but it may use poetic language to do so. And I think that that's important. But here, what I do think is important to note is that the earth is formless. There are themes that are already beginning to align. And that is the reality of what darkness brings, um, which is waste and void. Um, and it may be that judgment is a reversal of the creation story um, where there is an undoing if you will, um, it's also, also sin creates a reversal of God's good order. Um, so whatever is going on here, all I know is that there are important themes to take note of. The earth was formless and empty, tohu and bohu. When used in proximity, describe a situation resulting from judgment. But here it is a, it is a picture of the emptiness of the earth um, in its uh, it, and for whatever reason it's empty, there's darkness and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God. So God creates the Spirit of God now hovering over the waters. The darkness in Hoshuk, which in the Bible comes to symbolize that which opposes God. And then we move into these creation statements. And God said, day one, let there be light. And verse 2 can be connected to day 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. What do you notice in that passage? What does God call good? The light. He does not call, he doesn't create darkness. I think this is very important. He is not the creator of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. It is the separation of light uh, to, a, to a particular place. So this is fascinating. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He doesn't say, let there be darkness. He separates the light, and what is left is darkness, the absence of light. It is light that he says is good, not darkness. This is consistent with what we're told about God in Scripture. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. The other thing that is worth noting, uh, there are two things that are going to be a continual theme. 
the power of God's Word. He speaks things into existence. We are dealing with personality. Only a personality speaks. God spoke, let there be light. It is words that breathe into existence creation. And that points us once again to John chapter 1, the living word, Jesus himself, the, son of, the eternal Son of God, the Logos, uh, is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything that was made, um, everything that is made was made through Him and for Him. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, God said, I think this is an important thing. What does it say in Psalm 33? For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. There is no creation of darkness, no substance to darkness. It's the result of light's absence. Only light is good. The other thing that I think is important to note is not only it's the statement, it is good, which is something that he'll stay again and again through the creation story. And this is, this is a way of saying, this is what I intended. It is as it should be. It's also important for us to note this. The separation. The theme of separation is one that will play out through Scripture and it plays out through history. God separates light from darkness. Um, the separation, the idea of separation is critical. He separates light from darkness, the water from the lower water, day from night, and it's important um, in the law in general. In Leviticus, God separates the clean from the unclean, the holy from the profane. Uh, Exodus, God separates the holy place from the most holy place. I, I think that this is, this is a, there's a line of demarcation um, and we see it in the creation account, but it's going to play into spiritual realities as the narrative of the Scripture continues to unfold. Day two, the vault. This is a mysterious one. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. Um, that word vault can be, some translations say expanse, some translations say the firmament. But it is a poetic vision of how the ancient world saw the sky. Um, and this picture is that there is, there is water, that, that there's a separation, the waters that cover the earth, there is now a, a space that is placed between, and there is like this, the, the picture is a canopy of water, and, that, and that's their idea, their vision of the, of the sky above. Um, and there very well could have been a literal canopy of water above the earth, and there are many that believe that that is the picture of why the flood was, it, the water erupts from below and from above. Uh, but the, the point here is that there is God's creative power um, is the ability to create the space between which is the air that we breathe. It is the, the firmament around us, that there is the, there, the God's separation. What does that sound like? What is that even pointing to? Very similar to Moses separating the Red Sea, Joshua separating the Red Sea. These themes are going to continue to cycle throughout the Scripture. Um, the idea of separation is a very important one. Uh, but God said, let the vault between the separate uh, water from water. So God made the vault separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now day three, 
We have the separation of land from sea, vegetation for sustaining humans, and, garden, and, and we have this garden language. And, and I, 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 I want to just um, point out too that day two is, is, is interesting. It's the, it's the one day that he doesn't say it was good because it's less of a creation of something and more of the separation of something, uh, which is, I, I find really fascinating. Um, it's kind of mysterious. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. Once again, it separated. It's a separation. Water, the sea, and the land. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters. He called, in the gathered waters, he called seas. And God saw that it was what? Good. It's good. Things are being put into their place. Notice the divine ordering of things. And God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. This is one of those interesting things on the vegetation statements. Uh, notice the types of vegetation that is, that is listed is the type of vegetation that is necessary for human sustainability. Uh, this is garden language. This is already hinting at garden language. Uh, and, and I think that this is important because it shows that the ultimate theme of creation is this weird little thing at the center of it called mankind. <laughs> um, and that's <laughs> worth noting, um, which, you know, PETA does not like. They don't like that. The land produced vegetation, planting, plants bear. He saw it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Day three, once again, begins with separation and then creation. Separation of land from sea, water. The water is pushed aside and dry land is produced. And then the creation of vegetation upon that land. Um, I, I love that God, God speaks it. He names it. He's putting into, into motion these things. Now, this is what is interesting here. Day four. Because we already have the separation of light from dark and day and night, but it isn't until day four that the stars, the sun, the moon, and the stars are created. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and the days and the years. And let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. Uh, and God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning on the fourth day. Now, there have been many Hebrew scholars as well as church scholars throughout the history that see a spiritual reality planted in these verses um, it, Jesus himself is called the morning star. Um, it's interesting, Lucifer is also called at one point the morning star. But the idea of the, star, the stars are often symbolic of angelic, the God's holy counsel, uh, and even the protection or the, the guardians over the creation the, uh, of this unseen realm. But I think what's actually more important and what's more interesting is actually the the 
creation order that sun, moon, and stars, uh, which are, and we know the moon is not a source of light, it is, a, it is secondary light, it reflects light, it reflects the light of the sun, um, but these, the sun is actually a source of light. Um, but there's already night and there's already day. Why? Why is that so? And I want to just go back to the opening statement that Moses is giving to the children of Israel their own cosmology that is defining for them the one true creator God who stands supreme against, all, against and over all of the false gods of the world around them. And one of the things that was worshipped in ancient Egypt was the sun, which is Ra, um, and, and the moon, and, and the river, and a plethora of other things. Notice that the writer of Genesis does not even name the sun and the moon. Greater light, the two greater lights, one to rule the day and one to rule, um, one to rule the night. The, the point is this, is that there is a polemic happening against the false gods. There is an undoing of the gods. What, what I believe Moses and the, and the Hebrew writers of, of the text are always doing is there is layers upon layers of meaning in the text. And one of the things that is happening is it is a dismantling of false ideas about what we tend to worship. For the, crea for the creation, we tend to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And so there is, there is I think, purposeful is that God is the source of light and darkness is the absence of light. And that what is, what is being stated here is that these things are created things by the Creator. They are not God's. I think that that's the important, the important thing that's happening. Um, God is the source of light. He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Separate light from darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Day five, living things of the sea and sky. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing of which water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Um, the actual Hebrew, uh, probably a better translation for let the water teem with living creatures. It's literally let the water swarm with swarms. Uh, and, and that is, is a picture of fecundity. You guys know what the word fecundity is? It sounds dirty, I know. Um, but I really like that word. And it just means, uh, it, it, it means just fertile. It's the, this, the be multiply. And notice here, the second time of three times that the word create is used. It's the Hebrew word bara. And, and that create corresponds with three domains. You have God as creator of the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of living things. And then specifically, God is the creator of mankind. So verse 1, verse 21, and verse 27. Um, and so three spheres. 
the dominions in which all living things live, the heavens and the earth, the living things that are not made in the image of God, and then the unique image bearers, humanity itself. Um, and, and I think it's also interesting, this is the first time we see this word, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase. There's a blessing. He sees that it's good, and he tells that the birds of the air and the fish and all the animals in the sea increase. Also, there is this strange passage, the great creatures, which later will become, um, will become pictures of things like Leviathan, which are those forces that are against God. And once again, a separation even from the sea, from the sky, just worth noting, uh, is that there is, uh, there is a preference given to the, the sky that produces rain, that provides life, and the sea is often viewed, is almost, is always viewed negatively in Scripture as a source of chaos um, and a picture of darkness. And in heaven, there is no sea. It's really fascinating. I hope that's just metaphorical because I really like the ocean. Sixth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, the livestock the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. The land producing living creatures, livestock, once again, the first thing mentioned is that which sustains humanity. Humanity. You're like, wait, aren't... I'm a vegetarian. Well, historically, not so. God made the wild animals. I'm not saying anything against vegetarians, by the way. I praise God. In the words of the great sage Morrissey, meat is murder. I don't believe that, though. I don't. <laughs> then God said, let us make mankind in our image, verse 26, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Um, two things worth noting. First of all, mankind. Uh, some of your translations, uh, does ESV say, does it say mankind or does it say man? It says man. Uh, the word actually is Adam. And Adam means mankind. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I actually think this is an appropriate change uh, in translation because let us make mankind, uh, it, the, the passage is speaking, it isn't specifically about man, about maleness, but it is a, it is a passage about humanity. Um, in our image, um, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The other thing worth noting here is let us make mankind. Now, it's, it's interesting, the Net Bible in its, in its note says um, that the plural form of the verb has been the subject of much discussion and that many Christian theologians interpret it as an early hint of plurality within the Godhead, but this view imposes later Trinitarian concepts onto the text. I don't actually understand what the problem with that is uh, because if we are Trinitarian and that is actually foundational to what we believe, I don't feel like it's imposing anything. But this is classic 
this is classic scholarly like criticism, is the attempt to understand um, how does the Old Testament point to Jesus without trying to read the New Testament into it. Let me just state clearly that you're not talking about Jesus or even trying to figure that question out unless you actually had the New Testament. Um, and so I think that we, I, I believe that it is a Christian responsibility to interpret all of Scripture through the lens of the gospel. Um, and we have a full, fuller revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand its point, and it very well may not be hinting at the Trinity, but I don't see that as a problematic interpretation. Um, I, I think that it is true that in the Old Testament we see again and again um, a picture of the heavenly council of God declaring his purposes to those angelic beings, those angelic hosts that are messengers um, that do his bidding, the, the angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. Jacob, all I know is that I think that there is something very profound about the plurality, the use of um, the, even the word God, Elohim, is a, um, is a plural, but, we, but there is a, a, a forceful um, and tenacious holding to Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So one God, uh, three persons, is a fundamental uh, belief system for us as Christians. And so I find it impossible to not apply that Trinitarian grid to everything that I read in the Bible. Um, I look for it, actually, uh, because it is who God has revealed himself to be. And if we remove the Trinity, we actually we pull the thread out um, it's, it's, it will undo the whole fabric of our understanding of Christianity altogether. So I don't see a problem on it, but it, but it very well may be God speaking to the um, heavenly court. Now look what it says. So God created mankind in his own image, the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them in case there's any question on whether or not that opening word was speaking just of men. No, it was speaking of humanity. Um, and notice he says, you are to rule over everything else that I just made and to subdue. God bless him and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, humanity has in its core a desire to subdue creation. But subduing creation in a fallen state has led to not subduing, but domineering in a way that has brought much destruction uh, to the world as we know it. Uh, but in this unfallen state, we see God's design is that He has called humanity, you and I have been uniquely called to participate um, in, in God's care for the universe in which He created and placed us at the center of. Um, this is a beautiful um, picture that shows us that work is not the outcome it is not the outcome of the fall. It is something that we are designed to do, um, and it is actually a part of good, God's good design, and I promise you there will be work to be done um, in heaven. It's not like we're going to be perpetually retired. Um, it's going to be a joyous, sin-free work, whatever that is. But um, I don't know about you, but I find a great amount of joy in having something to do. And I don't know many people that actually find themselves happiest doing nothing. Um, we are designed to participate in the creation, um, to be here, to be gardeners, if you will, um, to, to participate in the care 
um, of the, so God is not just, this is not automata. This isn't like God just creating robots to do what he wants. This is an invitation to participate in his creation. And it's one of the key ways in which um, we know others uh, and we know God is we know God by not only spending time with him, but, particip- but by participating in his redemptive work. You can't know Jesus and reject the work of Jesus. Just like you can't be a human being in, in, in contemporary world and actually have a satisfying, fulfilling life in isolation. Um, there needs to be a, 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 a contributing element to your existence. It's, it's Martin Buber's I am thou. I think it's a really profound thing that's the, the, that no human being feels good uh, not contributing to the common good of the world in which it lives. Um, and actually, when you see people go into severe depressions where they can't get out of bed, um, they would give anything uh, to be able to break free from the tyranny of something that has so isolated them, so put them so deeply into their heads and diminishes their humanity. Um, I know because I've had my own seasons of anxiety, crippling anxiety, where it hinders your ability to participate. We, we have a desire, an innate desire to be a part of God's narrative, whether we know it or not. And he has created us to be um, creative, if you will, uh, to participate in the care uh, and the flourishing of the world around us. And what does it say? And to all all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath and life in it, I give every green plant for food. Everything in the created order was created and given to us. That is baffling. I just want you to think about that. And it was very good. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus... The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Day seven is the birth of Sabbath. The verb is usually translated when it says that he finished the work and that he blessed the seventh day. Um, because, and made it holy is that he sanctified it. He set it apart. Once again, it's something that is set apart. Uh, and it's that verb, um, kadesh, and it means to make something holy, to set something apart, to distinguish it. And on the literal level, the phrase means essentially that God made this day different than the other days. This day was different, and it will take a supreme place in Israel's worship. Uh, as the Lord's day. But I want you to note something here. What is unique about the seventh day beyond the fact that God rests from his work? There's something else that is worth noting. There is no end to it. It doesn't end. And Hebrews chapter 4 is clearly pointing to this reality. There is a Sabbath without end. There is a Sabbath without end. I would argue um, and I have my Sabbatarian friends, that is those who love to practice Sabbath, 
been a very popular thing over the last decade, uh, that Jesus is our Sabbath, and He is our Sabbath without end. But I would also say that we need rest, <laughs> and it, rest is written into the rhythm of creation, um, and human beings that don't rest don't fare well long term. So I would never argue that people shouldn't rest, that they shouldn't be, and I, I also think it's a beautiful thing to set aside a day to re remind ourselves. I mean, Sunday has been traditionally the church's day. It's the Lord's day. It's a day to reflect on God. Even our desire to relaunch Sunday evening is we want you to make this day about Jesus, to reset yourself because we need to be reminded that we worship and serve the one who spoke and all of this leapt into existence. What a powerful and beautiful thing. Okay, now there is a zoom in on day six and we jump into the, into the garden. This is, a, this is a zoom in. So this is not a different creation account. This is a, a, a more detailed vision of the, crea of, of the establishment of the Garden of Eden and, and our first parents, Adam and Eve, being placed in that garden. The, crea the gap between the creation of Adam and Eve. And we'll speak to that a little bit. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heaven, earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So man, that is male, man is formed from the dust. The thing to note is not that man's made from dust and that woman is made from man, but that both have the breath of God in them. I think that this is a very important thing. Breathe into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Note, I love that, pleasing to the eye and good for food, that there is a concern for beauty. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful? It's so easy to just read right past that. But there is a concern for beauty, uh, that, that we actually are creatures that are driven by the senses, um, by what we see, by what we smell, by what we touch. Um, by what we hear, um, and there is mystery in that, and there is, there is beauty in that, and there is an artistic genius in God. Every artist, artists may love to self-express, but even their ability to express themselves um, derives, whether they recognize it or not, from the one who created everything out of nothing. And God cares about beauty. Um, and, and we see that, you see that throughout the scripture. Um, but I love that. Just a little a hint. What was pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pashan. It winds through the entire land of, of Havilah. Where there is, it winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Such mysterious verses. I have nothing to say about them, by the way, so don't, don't ask me. The name, I just read this really famous ancient Hebrew text, and Hebrew um, rabbis, like in like the 
12th century had all these little symbolic meanings of that each river represented different types of learners. It's so fascinating. But I, I don't, I love it, but it's not, it's not actually, it's interesting. But as my wife said, interesting isn't necessarily helpful. Um, the name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Um, what I do think is interesting is that there may be poetic language being used. There may, be, um, there may even be the borrowing of mythopic language from near Far East um, uh, cosmologies. But in that language may be used, but it is being used to tell something that is true. Something that is anchored actually in history. Um, and I think that this is, this is important for us. So this, is, this held a real locality. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There it is, work again. And the Lord God commanded the man, notice this, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And there is the first warning. The command comes uh, with a warning. And the command is you can eat anything. Every, all this is yours, but just not that. And this, man, this just speaks to human nature. You can have anything, but not that is, is the moment that you're like, well, but that's, well then that's what I want because there must be something rad to that. Um, there's a withholding or something. Uh, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's what God said would happen. Put, put that away. When you eat from it, you will die. Death is mentioned. These are, these are all first mentions, friends. Separation, light, darkness, creation, um, that which is good. Uh, there, are, there are all these words that are going to continue to pop up through Scripture, themes that are going to be expanded on and take on deeper and deeper and more robust meaning. Um, it shows the, the power of the narrative and the grand storyteller that all the threads are right here um, that are going to be expanded on in, in mysterious ways. Now the Lord of the God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Also fascinating. So the man gave names to all the livestock. There is power um, and there is a, a beauty uh, and the naming of things has tremendous meaning in Scripture. Uh, the names in Scripture mean things. Uh, and it's like Adam, meaning mankind. Um, and so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. None like him. There's no one like him. So the Lord God caused... Did I skip something? Oh, I did. I'm sorry. The most important. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So, this is the first time God says, It's not good. And he says, I've shared this before, so I'm not going to dig into it right now. It is not good is unique in the fact that he says that something is not good before sin has even entered the story. And what he is saying is that this is not what I intended, man to be an isolated creature. 
and man, he did not intend for man by himself to be alone with him. He intended man to have others like himself, which is the supreme way that we actually know God as well. Um, so, um, I've taught on that. You can listen to teachings on it. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Um, the beauty of this passage uh, obviously speaks to the need for others, but it also speaks to the profound reality of the marriage covenant. Uh, it also speaks to the relationship of man and woman. And I want to just point out one thing, and then we're just going to move on really quickly. Eve was taken out of Adam's side, not his back. And I think that that's really important. <laughs> and that is that Eve was not given to, to Adam to fulfill his dreams. Eve was given to Adam so that together they could image God in the fullness that we see in verse 27 um, of, of chapter 1. And so he made man and woman. In his image, he made them. The image, the singular, is wrapped up in the both, the both and. Um, and so I think it's very important that what we have is that there is a distinction in roles, and I hold tenaciously to that. I cannot carry babies or give birth to babies. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, that's not what I am capable of doing. There are different, there are distinctions. There are realities um, between the sexes. And our world right now is doing all that it can to eradicate those distinctions. And it is not helping anything. It's creating a disaster in our understanding of what it means to be human beings. Um, and, and I think that this is a, a beautiful picture of equality, but difference. It's equality, but distinction. That there are different roles to be played, just as there are distinctions within the Godhead. The Father is never the Son. The Son is never the Father. The Spirit is not the Father and the Son, and yet there is one God. And I think that this is a, a picture that as we even move, that the two shall become one flesh. There is a, a oneness that flows out of the distinctions and the uniqueness and distinctions flow out of the oneness. It is together that they discover the uniqueness of their roles, um, which is also something that's important for us in our modern context because we tend to believe that our uniqueness is wrapped up in our separation from others. No, our uniqueness is discovered in our relationship to others. That's why we're persons. Um, I would prefer the word personhood over individual because individual is a, is how am I different from everyone else rather than how do I discover my uniqueness in context of my service of others? Um, and I think that's very different. So, uh, beautiful picture of, of creation, man and woman side by side, co-laboring to fulfill 
the mandate that God has given them to subdue, subdue and rule over the earth. Um, different roles, uh, but both image bearers of God, and it is together that the image is most perfectly formed. And I would argue for us as the church, we image Jesus most fully together. I feel far more comfortable saying Jesus is like us when we actually love one another than I am saying Jesus is just like me. Um, wouldn't you agree with that? I'm best with others. I am best, my wife, however she does it, makes me a better human being. I'm a better human being when she's with me. I'm a better human being when my kids are with me. I'm a better human being when you are with me, um, which is why we're together. Okay. Now, the serpent was more crafty. Verse uh, one of chapter three. We started late tonight, guys, and I promise next week we will not do that. The serpent, we're just gonna go through three. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent already here is a picture um, is, um, is pointing to a, a reality that goes beyond something that is a part of God's uh, good creation. And we are not told why the serpent is in the garden. So speculate all you want. I don't know why he's there. He just is. And the serpent we are told in Revelation, I am going to read the New Testament back into it, is the devil himself who has been a liar from the beginning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What is the tactic? First tactic, questioning God's word, God's authority. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. So first mistake on the human side. Team Satan, <laughs> can you trust God's word? Why, why did he really say that? Questioning God, what God said. Human mistake, adding to what God said. Did God say you can't touch it? He did not. He said you cannot eat of it. I would argue that if you shouldn't eat of it, you probably shouldn't touch it. <laughs> but, but there is an adding to what was said. You must not touch it or you will die. You will, certain, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is, what is the serpent's second tactic? Is the first the questioning of God's authority in God's word, the human, the human failure falling into the trap, adding to that word, or misunderstanding that word, and then Satan's complete denial of it. That he, God is lying to you. He's not, he's not being honest with you. You will not die. God said you will die if you eat of it. He said, the serpent said, and, and this, is, this is what's so interesting what the serpent says, he says, you will certainly not die. The serpent actually is telling the truth there because she said, if we touch it, we will die. The serpent tells her a truth that's wrapped in a lie. I don't know if you caught that, but it's, he's saying, no, you're not gonna die if you touch it, that's true. But then when he goes on to say that isn't true, he attaches a lie to the lie that she believed 
He tells a truth about her lie, but then attaches a lie to it, sealing the deal. It's so mischievous. <laughs> it's more than that. It's wicked. Um, you will become like God. You will be like God. Once again, he tells her something. He promises her something that she already has. She already is like God. She is an image bearer of God without sin yet. She's experiencing temptation, but she has not yet entered into the realm of sin which leads to death. Temptation that leads to sin that leads to death. This is the way that it goes. But notice, he says, you'll be like God. She already was like God. And you'll know good and evil. But what she doesn't understand is that she already knows all the good that she needs to know because she's living what God intended. And the evil that she needs to know is to rebel against the one command he gave. So what is he offering her then? Well, it's not that there's magic in the fruit. What they do in this moment is they define for themselves what is good and evil, which is the essence of sin. It is the rebellion against God's rule, and it is the redefining of right and wrong and doing what is right in our own eyes. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was there, and he ate it. Also notice the, um, the disorder in the distinctions of role. She, Adam, who is supposed to be her protector, her covering, is sitting in the background allowing this to happen. <laughs> and it, what's fascinating is that the sin lands firmly on the head. He carries the weight of that sin throughout human history because he is the head of that household. So it says that Eve was deceived, but through the first Adam, sin entered the world. Isn't that interesting? Eve is deceived. Now, doesn't mean that humanity didn't sin. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a unique responsibility um, that was given to Adam that he failed at, and then there is a unique responsibility that he carries for the weight of that mistake. Uh, and, and it took the second Adam, Jesus, to set right what the first Adam did wrong. So, then the man and his wife, I love this, when the woman saw the fruit, she gives it to her husband. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. Notice what, what does that mean? They became self-conscious. Self-conscious. They become self-focused. Whoa, I don't like what I'm seeing. Um, which means you probably don't like what you're seeing either. And they are ashamed. They're ashamed. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the first level of hiding. They hide their bodies, and then they hide from God. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man where are you and he answered I heard you in the garden and I was afraid 
because I was naked, so I hid. The outcome of sin is always hiding. It's always hiding. Um, hiding is not sin. Hiding is the outcome of rebellion and the rejection of grace. It's, the, it's what births shame. And, and this is such a tragic note in what has been such a beautiful narrative. Um, and it's the root of everything. God thought the risk was worth it though. It's what one of the church fathers referred to as oh, um, Anselm said, oh Felix culpa, oh happy guilt. I wouldn't go that far, but he said, but his idea was that without the fall, there would not be the incarnation. Um, I, I think it's silly to assume that if it wasn't them, it would have been somebody. <laughs> so, uh, but, but representative man and woman um, fall. And God, here's the thing, how do you hear God's voice here? How do you hear God's voice? Ian and I had a great conversation about this the other day. Do you hear him as angry, stomping around in the garden, just like, ah, oh. And you go, when you go outside to go for a walk after you got in a fight with someone, it's like you go out to clear your head. But this isn't what God's doing here. He is walking directly toward and into the mess. He is walking right in, squarely into humanity's rebellion. It isn't God that's hiding. It's man who's hiding. God is, is, is there immediately. And look what he says. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, the greatest passage of the scapegoat mechanism. Women, you cannot trust them. It's going to let that sit for a second. No, no, this is, this, is the, this is the great, what a shameful moment for Adam. What a shameful moment. The, the woman you put here is not me, it was her. It's not me, it was her. This is not a, a man versus woman thing either, by the way. This is just human beings treating human beings. This is what we do. This is what we're incredible at. at. We love to make someone else responsible um, uh, for the pain that we endure. Everybody else is to blame, but not me, not me. The scapegoat mechanism is put, is put into motion right here. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And that actually is true. That actually is true. The serpent did deceive her. Um, I, I like to say that, it's, that, that they both scapegoat. It wasn't me, it was the man. It wasn't me, it was the serpent. But actually Eve, according to um, Corinthians, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, I don't want you to be deceived in moving away from the simplicity of the gospel. I, I actually think Eve is being honest. I think Adam is being a bit of a baby, like needs a good slap in the face. Um, so the Lord said to the serpent, notice the serpent, he doesn't even ask the serpent, what did you do? Because he knows what he is and there's no need to ask him. In fact, the, he doesn't ask the serpent anything, he just curses the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you 
above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I really don't believe that this means that snakes once had legs and were, you know, possibly dragons. I, I think that this is, this is moving into meta realm. This is moving into layers of meaning and spiritual depth because look what it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. There hasn't been this great um, rift between women and snakes, okay? Um, no, this is speaking specifically of the reality of, of Satan as the ruler of this world and God's promise to bring redemption um, through, uh, through a human line who will what? Between your offspring and and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the striking of the heel we see at Calvary. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Please don't ask me how a woman giving birth would have not been painful before because I don't know. And I don't want to speculate because it just gets really weird really fast. I think what's important here is that the outcome of sin is pain. And that the outcome of, and that even good things are going to come actually through suffering. And suffering becomes a, one of the ultimate threads in Scripture that God is consistently using and redeeming and bringing beauty out of. And we're all products of that reality. And your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And this is, I think, one of the, this, this does put into motion the great battle and the great misunderstanding between the sexes um, throughout human history is that there is going to be a reality that comes out of sin that is going to create friction. Um, and specifically, it's going, to make, uh, it's going to make that relationship between men and women um, difficult. But look what he says to Adam. And he said, and to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. God does not curse Adam and Eve. I think it's really important. This, they are not cursed. Satan is cursed and the ground is cursed. Adam and Eve have to deal with a world that is cursed um, and have to deal with sin which has let death and pain and suffering in. Um, and I believe what God is saying, I don't believe that God, I don't think actually childbirth was any different, um, was going to be different after. I think that what, what God is saying in that statement is, is that God, God is the cause, God is also what, God is a God who permits or allows the outcome, the natural movement, the cause and effect of sin is that it creates pain. And God allows that pain to play itself out. And we can't forget that he never loses hold of his redemptive purposes. Um, and so I think that pain is, is a part of now will be the thing that he utilizes to bring about his redemptive purposes. But he curses the ground. He says, cursed is the ground because of you, actually in the King James, um, it, and, and it can be translated this way, I looked at the Hebrew, cursed is the ground for your sake. Cursed is the ground for your sake. 
If God had left humanity in the garden in an unfallen state, they would never see their need for God. But it is in allowing this, the suffering that man would cry out to God again. And I think this is important because what humanity has consistently tried to do since the beginning of time is to recreate the garden without God. I think that America did a pretty good job of at least doing that for a segment of segments of society throughout its history. And we also live in a country that is seeing less and less its need for God. And it's one of the greatest gifts of the pandemic is that it's led people to recognize, oh yeah, I am not going to live forever. And death is real. And, uh, and life is scary. And there are unpredictable realities that my wealth or my status cannot protect me from. Um, we have, we have constantly tried to recreate the garden ever since we've been kicked out of it. And we need to understand that. God, for the sake of humanity, makes toil difficult so that there will be a reliance upon God for help. I believe that with all of my heart. And by the sweat of your brow, um, it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And now, the, the creation of man from dust and woman from the rib of man is the natural order of all progeny since. We come from flesh and we return to dust. We return to dust. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So an angelic being is placed at the entrance of the, I actually have this amazing picture um, uh, put up next week, an ancient illustration of what that would have looked like, the, of the, the land and the garden um, and the, the angels on each end of the garden. Um, it's pretty cool. But here's, this is what I wanna say. The man has now become like one of us I actually love the King James. Behold, the man has become like us. There's another phrase where that statement is used again. In, in the, the King James, it says, Behold, the man has become like us. In John chapter 20, Pilate takes a man and steps him out onto the center stage as a source of mockery before a jeering crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. And he was presented as a mock king and a crown of thorns on his head and beaten beyond human recognition. And Pilate made the truest statement that he ever said in his life, behold the man. I want you to contrast these two things in closing because all of this scripture, Jesus said, if you knew Moses and you knew the word, you would know that it all spoke of me. What God is saying here is behold, 
man has become what we did not intend. He's become like one of us. He's become his own God. Then God, the God-man, is brought before fallen humanity. And man in a fallen state says of God, behold the man, and it's the truest thing they ever said. Because what he said is the very thing that people were beholding. Man as God intended man to be is what was envisioned, what you saw in Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam who sets right what the first Adam did wrong. There is a reversal of the curse on the world because Jesus became a curse for us. Um, I think that this is, this is such a beautiful place for us to close um, for the evening. It's exactly 7.27. We said we we're going to end at 7.30. The goal is to create space for questions. And so what I'll do next week, we'll start right at 6. Um, and, uh, and we will end the teaching at 7 so that there's time um, for questions. So if you have questions from this week, I want you to just hold on to them for next week because um, we'll continue this team. In fact, we can even maybe start with a couple questions um, before we jump into it. Um, but we just covered three very dense and very foundational chapters of Genesis. And it was fun, for me at least. So none of you fell asleep. I look, I watched faces. So let's, let's pray. Blessings upon all of you. Love you guys. So grateful for this church.